going to remain standing. Um, this is from Titus 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness and hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child, in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is James Walden, as, uh, as Matt already uh, introduced, um, and it has been really sweet to worship with you guys this morning um, and just to spend this time together, to be here. I've been able to follow you in your story uh, through friendships um, over the years, and uh, I've had opportunity to hear the good, the hard, and to pray together for Midlands Church, and so it's really sweet to just see the Lord's work here, and through friendships as early as Luke Seifert, who some of you don't remember, probably. Uh, and through Luke, I became, got to be connected and become friends with Shane Parker. And through Shane, Ian Franklin, oh, Ian, <laughs> and Hart, and then Matt. And, and Matt and I have been able to have lunch over the last couple of years and just commiserate over ministry hardships together, pray together, um, uh, give counsel to one another, uh, just talk shop and and Matt, without any, taking anything away from you, brother, I have missed Ian, lunches with Ian. Uh, just his frankness, uh, uh, his sense of humor, uh, just being mocked by him. Uh, I miss his northernness, you know? Like, lack of southernness was, was really refreshing. Um, but this morning, it is my great privilege to stand before the body of Christ here and really preach on what is probably my greatest conviction. I mean, what has compelled me and impelled me throughout ministry, what gets me out of bed in the morning, especially on Monday mornings, and what keeps me going. And this conviction is simply this. Um, the most beautiful and compelling thing in the world is the gospel of Jesus. It's beautiful and powerful and true because it is the beautiful revelation of the beautiful and only God found or known in the beautiful face of Jesus. And I believe this beautiful gospel creates the most beautiful things in this world. Most remarkably, it produces a beautiful people. In fact, it's my conviction that the most beautiful thing the gospel yields in the soil of this earth is the church. The people of God living life together. 
And it is this gospel of the beautiful Christ that creates this beautiful community called church. When planted, it bears its beautiful fruit, its inevitable and wonderful harvest, beauty unleashed in the world. In fact, it lies at the center of what the gospel's doing in the world and what God's doing in the world through his gospel, through this gospel work he's entrusted to us. I mean, look at what Paul writes here regarding his gospel work as an apostle. Again, if you have your Bibles, please open them with me to Titus chapter 1. I'm going to do the ill-advisable thing of preaching the entire book, at least portions of it. Uh, but the letter was intended to be read in one sitting. And so here we go. In one sitting, we're going to walk through at least portions. But here in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul says, A servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for what? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. And their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. That is to say, it accords with what is morally beautiful, what is commendable, what is attractive, what is good. In the hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, but at the proper time has manifested in his word, the gospel, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. This, this gospel now revealed is, is littered throughout the letter of Titus because it is the seed which bears this fruit. And so he keeps harking back to this fundamental truth. Uh, jump to chapter 2, verse 11 with me, where Paul mentions this gospel again as the engine for ministry for Titus. But chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, to renounce ungodliness, I like the NIV, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a beautiful people, a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. They live beautiful lives. Or jump down to chapter 3, where Paul continues this theme of the aim of the gospel producing good works among God's people. Look at verse 4. Once again, it has appeared, this grace, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to hope. This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be what? Careful to devote themselves to good deeds. They may be careful, devoted to living beautiful lives. That is what the gospel teaches us to do. And what I want to do this morning is I want to share some of my own experiences as a planter in attempting to plant the gospel in the soil here of Columbia. What I've learned, not on the ideal pages of a church planting brochure or on a clever vision scrawled on a whiteboard, but in the trenches of ministry, uh, attempting to seed and water the gospel in the South, which some have said is the toughest territory for gospel planting in the U.S., the South, the burned over ground of the South, the inoculated ground of the South. 
but more than learning from my experience, my hope and prayers that we learn from his word this morning. So would you pray with me that the spirit would illuminate his text as Matt's already prayed. <clears throat> Father, I do thank you for the opportunity to stand here and to serve your family. Help me to do that well and faithfully. Lord, that my speech would be above reproach as Paul instructs Timothy, and I would rightly divide this word as Paul told the young Timothy. And Lord, that we, this would happen that your spirit may empower us, Lord, may provoke us to love and good deeds, Lord, may stir us uh, to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, Lord, for your glory, for our joy, and for the gospel's advance, we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Well, the first thing we see here, as was read, that Paul instructs Timothy in the planting of gospel-centered churches is the priority of good leadership. In order to establish a healthy church through the gospel, we have to give ourselves to the task of developing healthy, gospel-saturated leaders. The answer to struggling churches and the churches in the island of Crete, where Paul here is instructing Titus to engage his ministry, were struggling. They were fledgling and they were also racked with bad teaching and really bad leaders. And so the solution to struggling churches, the answer to struggling churches is healthy leadership. So that's where Paul goes. I left you there, verse 5, in Crete, that you may uh, put into order what remained, and that is to appoint elders in every town. And then he goes on to give the qualifications for these elders or overseers. The terms are used interchangeably in our New Testaments. These were the under-shepherds, under Christ, who shepherded the churches uh, to which the Holy Spirit had given them oversight. But this is easier said than done. How do you get a good church? Well, you need good leaders. That makes sense. But the, the, the real pressing question for Titus and for any church planter and anyone in ministry is, how do I get good leaders? Especially in a place like Columbia. Especially in a place like Crete. Where do I get good leaders? Jump down to verse 12 where Paul describes the soil of Crete. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. <laughs> right? So Paul says, like, that, that's, like, this prophet said it, and I'm saying amen to it. That's true. So how do you get good leaders out of this? Like, that's Titus's great struggle. Like, well, how do I get leaders out of this context? The, the word here, the, the, the quote here, the prophet, the pagan prophet that Paul, that Paul quotes here is Epimenides, a 6th century philosopher who was a Cretan himself. And it became known later, much, much later in history as the Epimenidean paradox because it's like the Cretan just told you that all Cretans are liars. Is it true? Is it false? If it's true, well, then he just told me a truth. And so it's not true. But if it's not true, then it's true that he's a liar. You know, it's, a, it's, it's how Spock caused an, an android to explode, by the way, in an episode of Star Trek. He used the Epimenian paradox uh, to say, I'm, I'm lying to you right now. Is it true or false? But that's not, that's not the original context of the quote. The original context is actually far more interesting. In fact, it's repeated again in the third century by a, a poet named Camillicus. And this is the full reading. Cretans are always liars. For a tomb, O Lord, Cretans build for you, but you do not die, for you are forever. The background of that quote is that there was this Cretan legend 
that Zeus, the great god over the Pantheon, died and his tomb is found in the island of Crete. You can come see where Zeus is buried. It was great for religious tourism. But as you can imagine, it really angered pious worshipers of Zeus to say, oh, by the way, your god is dead and he's buried in our backyard. But that was the lie of the Cretans. It, so it wasn't just that Cretans were all seen as pathological liars. They were theological liars. They were, they were her heretics. They were blasphemous opportunists who told stories to get religious folks, gullible religious folks, to give them money. And that's why Polybius in the second century said, Cretans are the only people in the world in whose eyes no gain is disgraceful. Even, even irreligious gain. Right? These are unholy rollers uh, stealing money from the, flocking the, the, sh the sheep, you know, or sorry, or uh, uh, stealing from the flock. So, uh, in fact, there was a Greek word, to cretize, based on Cretan. To cretize means to lie. So this is their reputation that goes back to this particularly heinous, ungodly lies that was seen in Greek culture of saying, we have the tomb of Zeus. Now, that's, all that's an important background because the elders that Paul says are to be raised up here, the overseers, are to be so remarkably different from this. They are truth tellers. They are not ungodly. They are to be godly truth tellers. They are to be the opposite of what the reputation of Crete is. I mean, it's interesting. When Paul gives his qualifications here, we know, first off, what's not mentioned there's a lot here that I would want in my spiritual leaders that is not mentioned here. Like, for instance, Paul says nothing about their prayer lives. Does Paul not care about the prayer lives of elders? Well, no, of course he does. He talks about prayer quite a bit. But his point is he's focusing selectively on those virtues that would have resonated with the culture at Crete. You see, Cretans themselves knew they had this reputation, and they didn't necessarily cherish it. They, too, valued truth-telling and godliness and self-control. Paul here isolates those very virtues. In fact, many students of the pastoral epistles, that's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, have often noted how strange these letters are because of how Greek the virtues appear to be. But it's not strange because Paul knows that the whole goal of leadership is to commend the truth to unbelievers. In fact, Mark Dever says that. Mark Dever, who's the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist Church, I love it. He says this, the whole point of leadership in the church is to bring glory to God by commending the truth to outsiders. That's the whole point of good leaders. Their very lives embody and commend the truth to a watching world. And that truth accords with that culture's own values. Values like tolerance and hospitality and kindness and compassion and truth-telling and love and forgiveness, and mercy. These are values our culture holds that we would write, maybe rightly highlight among those that would lead the church in our culture. As Paul highlights the Greek virtues in the cultures of the churches he planted in. And why are leaders to commend the truth to outsiders? Because that's the whole point of the church itself. Why does the church exist in the world, this beautiful community? It's not just to be beautiful for itself. It's to put on display the beautiful gospel. It's what Paul tells Timothy. He, after he tells Timothy the qualifications for leaders, the very next thing he says is, in case I'm delayed, I'm writing these things so that you may know how people should conduct themselves in the church. That is, the household of God, which is the pillar 
and the buttress of the truth. The whole point of a pillar and a buttress in Greek architecture is to thrust forward the roof, to thrust forward the most visible portion of a temple. And it's to put on display the truth before a watching world. That's why the church exists, to display to a watching world the beauty of the gospel. And to do that, you need good leaders. St. Jerome in the fourth century wrote this. And many churches nowadays um, are built this way. Walls and pillars of glowing marble. Their ceilings glitter with gold. Their altars are studded with jewels. Yet to the choice of Christ's ministers, no heed is paid. The first thing we must consider in building beautiful churches is building it with beautiful leaders. But again, that's nicely said. How is it done? How do we embody men who, produce, who, are, who are the opposite of their culture's deeply rooted corruptions and stereotypes? How do we raise up spiritual leaders who embody the deepest and truest longings that our culture wants but cannot itself produce? And the answer is good teaching. And look what he says in verse 9. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. He has been taught well. As Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy, what you have learned from me, that pattern of sound teaching you've heard for years from me, Timothy, and not just the words I've used, but how I've taught it in the conduct of my life. You've seen how I taught, how I suffered with long-suffering and patience in patiently instructing the saints. You've seen how I've done it. I want you to do the same, Timothy, and to guard this good deposit. And he says, what you've heard from me, what you've learned from me, what you've seen in me, I want you to entrust to other faithful men who will do the same. They will take that good deposit. They will preserve it and they will pass it on. And that's how good leaders are made and how the church is sustained. Both men and women who have various kinds of leadership roles in the church. So the key to good leadership is good doctrine, good teaching imbibed and practiced over time. And I can say that the best elders we've had at Riverside were the men who understood the gospel most deeply, and they spoke it. They interpreted their life experiences in terms of the gospel. They were the most refreshing men to be around because they reoriented me when I needed to be reoriented around the gospel. They saw their lives in that gospel reality because they were saturated with it. They were constantly preaching it to themselves and to each other. And it's been my great privilege by the grace of God to see Southern men become more and more godly, to take on the Southern ideals of hospitality and graciousness, truly, because of the gospel's impact in their life. Now, the task of leadership is, as, I've, as we've already hinted at, is to not only be shaped, but to shape others by this gospel. They are to be gospel-formed, and as we'll see with Titus, they are to set the example. This is why, by the way, leaders are not held to a higher standard. Sometimes you hear that. Well, leaders are held to a higher standard. That is not true. In fact, that sentiment undermines their very purpose. Because if they are held to a higher standard than I'm held to, then guess what? I can dismiss their example because it's not my standards. The whole point is that they are gospel-formed men who are shaped consistently, yes, and they are held to the same standard more strictly, James says, but not a higher standard. It's important that they walk the same standard all of us are called to so that they can be our examples, 
so that we cannot lightly dismiss them. Well, but they have a higher calling than I do, right? It's a subtle danger that we do. But the whole point, what's, you know, D.A. Carson, who's a New Testament scholar, says the most remarkable thing about this list in Titus is how unremarkable it is. Everything here is what every Christian's called to do. Every Christian is called to have these same character traits. And so they are to embody this, they are to practice this gospel-centered life, and they are to teach it constantly. Look at verses 9 and following. So we talked about how they hold firm to what they've been taught, their their faithfully received instruction, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are uh, upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain. That's what the Cretans were known for using religion for money, what they ought not to teach. And that's why he goes into one of the Cretans have said, they are always liars. The remedy to bad behavior is good teaching over time. Faithful, patient, good teaching over time. And you need a multiplicity of good leaders to do that. You can't do that by yourself as a, as a church planner or a lead pastor. You need a whole team of elders faithfully teaching the congregation over and over, over time. But you need more than that. Having good elders is great. It's not enough. You need to have a congregation that is gospel-shaped. You need a church full of good doctrine, which leads me to the second point. Gospel-centered discipleship yields beautiful people. Look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1, as Paul transitions from leadership to the congregation. But as for you, Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then look what he goes on to list the different folks in the church. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Older women, verse 3, likewise to be reverent, not slanderers or slaves to wine. Uh, Verse 4, these older women are to teach younger women to love their husbands, to be self-controlled, verse 5. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Notice the the repetition of self-control. It's a very Greek virtue. It's a very biblical virtue. And it's so unlike Crete and the reputation of Crete. But this is what the gospel teaches us. Look again at verse 11 that we read earlier. Chapter 2, verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all, teaching us or training us to renounce or say no to ungodliness or worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. That is the exact opposite of how Cretans are described back in chapter 1, verse 12. They're described as not godly, but blasphemous liars. They're described as not upright, but evil beasts, as if on all fours. They're described as not um, self-controlled, but lazy gluttons. So you see how the gospel immediately and directly addresses the ills of the culture, the corruption of the culture. And when applied over time, reverses those ills, corrects those, and it serves as a remedy to those. And so uh, the gospel is to be continually taught within the congregation. And that thus the gospel is able to produce the virtues which the culture longs for but cannot itself attain. And there's a concern here for the gospel's witness throughout. I mean, look at verse 5. 
to the self-controlled, pure, working at home, these, speaking of young wives, submissive to their husbands, so that the word of God may not be reviled. Or look in verse 8 with Titus's pattern of teaching amongst the congregation. He's been marked by sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing bad to say about the teaching of the church. Or jump down to verse 10 when he's speaking to household servants. He says, they're not to be pilfering, but show all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. They are to beautify the doctrine, not because it isn't already beautiful, but to show off its beauty by their manner of life. And so the whole congregation, not just the leaders, shows off the beauty of the gospel in every nook and cranny of the culture where those members are found and live and do their work and play. The gospel is constantly displaying itself in the life of the church. You know, one of the most powerful responses I ever heard to a critic of the church goes back to the third century. There's a church father named Origen, and he was debating with a Greek philosopher named Celsus. And Celsus was responding to this mocking of Zeus that, that hails from Crete. And Christians took this up, by the way. You can imagine Christians love this. Oh, your God Zeus? I heard he was buried at Crete. How's that going for you? And so Celsus picked that up and said, actually, it's your God who died. And then he just became a God later, just like Dionysus or Hercules. He was a mere mortal who, after his death, emerged in legend as God. That was Celsus' response. And Origen's rebuke or response to it is brilliant and devastating. He says, which one of these mentored gods, Dionysus, Hercules, can point to a community of people who have been radically transformed by their life and teaching? Because I can point to my church filled with men and women whose lives have been morally reformed at a radical level by Jesus. Can you point to those people? Origen asks. We might well ask that of ourselves. Can we point that of our own churches and say, I have a community of people whose lives have been radically transformed by the gospel. There is proof of the deity of Jesus. There is proof of the resurrection. Look at these changed lives. Look at these beautiful lives. Well, I need to jump forward here. It's not enough just to model the gospel, just to teach the gospel. We have to... We have to teach the full implications. Sometimes I think we think if we just talk about Jesus' death and resurrection and the grace of God, we'll just sort of automatically get the implications of it. That we'll just learn how to live good lives. But Paul seems to think that we have to explicitly teach the full gospel and its implications over and over and over again. Look at chapter 3, verse 1 with me, please. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Doesn't that sound like a sweet community, a beautiful people? For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions. We were evil beasts and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's a very ugly community. I do not want to be part of that community. Sadly, some churches look that way because they're not shaped by the gospel. 
But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of any works done by us in righteousness. We didn't have any. But according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration, a renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This saying is trustworthy. He's saying this is a good thing to say. Keep insisting on it, Titus, so that those who have believed may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Show them the implications of this. We have to teach explicitly. It's not enough just to know that Jesus loves you. We have to know that the implications of that love is that we love our enemies. Right? We have to be taught that over and over again. Sometimes we, when, when, when a preacher preaches on morality of the church, we can wrongly dismiss his preaching as moralistic. That's not true. The gospel is always moral. It always teaches morality. And if we don't teach morality, we are not teaching the gospel. Maybe we're teaching a kind of cheap grace, but not this thick grace that changes human lives. And that's what Paul tells Titus. Keep insisting on these things. They, our people need to be... In fact, look at verse 14. Jump down to verse 14 of chapter 3. Let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Teach them this over and over again. They've got to be fruitful. They've got to apply themselves. As the author of Hebrews says, we are to stir one another up by way of reminder of love and good deeds. We have to provoke each other to that. Because we can sometimes have this twisted logic that the gospel of grace alone, of justification by faith apart from works, undercuts the gospel's call for good works. That it somehow yields a life apart from works, a faith without good deeds. But on the contrary, the gospel of grace apart from works is exactly what empowers us for good works. And perhaps no one saw that more clearly than the 16th century reformer Martin Luther. Martin Luther saw all these religious people doing everything in their power to be saved. And they loved their neighbors because that was part of being saved. They, they gave they gave money to the poor. But Luther began to see in himself and others, you're not, you don't love your neighbor. You're just trying to save yourself. Like, you're just trying to get into heaven. Like, it's totally self-focused. Like, I need to get in. I need to get in. What do I need to do to get in? And he says, the gospel frees me because I know I'm already in to just love my neighbor. I'm not doing it as, an, as, a, as a way to get into heaven. I'm not doing it as a way to serve myself but because I've already been served and I'm already in, I can just love freely. There's no, there's no carrot or stick. I just love my neighbor. As Martin Luther beautifully put it, God doesn't need your good deeds, but your neighbor does. And now you're free to do it because you're saved. You're already in. You already have the hope of eternal life. The God who does not lie says you're in, so you're in. So you get to love with reckless abandonment. Because your future literally could not be any brighter than it is. We have nothing to lose as the saints. So we have everything that we can give. More than that, the gospel shapes us on how to be good people. Because the only way to learn how to give mercy and love and forgiveness is by receiving it, right? It's really hard to tell a child to be merciful when we're not merciful parents. It's really hard to tell our kids to, to be, be loving, you know, like it just doesn't work. But when, you're, when you receive the love and grace of the gospel over and over again, 
It frees your heart. It teaches your heart. It instructs your heart how to be merciful, how to be loving. Right? As we receive mercy, we're better able to show it. I was shown mercy. And that's what Paul highlights here in verses 1 and 2. He says, he says, look, remind them of these things because, verse 3, we ourselves are once total moral idiots. And yet God has showed us mercy and kindness and compassion. And so we can do the same because we've experienced it. We've known mercy. So we know how to show it. We've known love. We've drunk deeply of his love. So we, we have the resources to pour it out. We've been shaped by this gospel. We don't just know, okay, I'm supposed to do good deeds now. My heart's disposition is being continually transformed as I'm receiving grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. As Paul writes elsewhere, forgive as you've been forgiven, right? As we've experienced that forgiveness, we know how to show it. That's how the gospel works. Have you experienced it? Are you experiencing it now? Which is just in the way of saying, are you experiencing the crucified and resurrected Christ? Are you encountering him and seeing in his beautiful face God himself and experiencing a living God through Jesus? May we experience him more deeply in his word, in his sacrament, not just this morning, but in the weeks, months, and years to come that we might be deeply shaped by his unfathomable love, that we might love our neighbors more fully and perfectly and more fully and perfectly display to the angels, to the demons, and to Southerners here in our city the wisdom of God in Christ. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for your kindness that has appeared in Christ Jesus, your love for mankind, your love for humanity, though we did not deserve it. Lord, you have loved us fully and perfectly. Lord, help us to lean into that love this morning as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Help us to lean into your unfathomable love that you would lay down your life for us, Lord. And may we be equipped by love to love our neighbors, we pray. Amen.